Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. I'm Hal Whitman. We are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Ben and Jenna Story. The Stories are both senior fellows in Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at AEI and concurrently are research professors at Furman University, where they ran the Tocqueville program. At AEI, they focus on political philosophy, civil society, and higher education. Stories wrote a book together titled Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment and are working on a new one about liberal education and civic life. For our fall 2022 issue, Ben and Jenna authored an essay about our need for more nuanced conception of political speech. They argue the proponents of free speech absolutism on the one hand and of epistemic control on the other both fail to grapple with the root of the problem, which is our inability to negotiate social divisions in pursuit of a common good. Ben and Jenna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dan and Hal, for having us on. Great to be here. Absolutely. So we want to start uh, the conversation with where you start your essay about outlining these two different views of how to approach political divisions today. Um, The first one being, as I already kind of mentioned, that free speech absolutism, that if we just remove all constraints on speech, then the truth will arise um, and that will be the best way to heal our divisions. The other view is that actually the opposite, that we need more boundaries, more parameters, more restrictions on speech to elevate the truth. Both of you say that's not quite the right way to think about it. And you cite Aristotle, which some would argue is the, the greatest philosopher in the Western tradition. Maybe that's a bit of a hot take. We can talk about that later. But you cite Aristotle saying that politics is a mean between these two views of complete freedom or unquestioned authority, which I think is a really interesting way to think about it. So yeah, we want to start the conversation with asking, what are these two kind of opposing views that you outline? Why are they wrong? And how does Aristotle offer a good middle ground to, the, to those? Thanks for the question. We started this essay because we were noticing that a lot of people are frustrated today with what we might call politically inflected talk. Um, It seems that political talk has infiltrated much of our lives, uh, our institutions, and even our relationships in ways that are frustrating to us. And so a number of uh, people have tried to come up with, with ways to discipline that talk um, or do something about it that would make it better, right? So roughly those uh, suggestions are divided into two camps, as Mm -hmm. you said. There are people that think that the more freewheeling debate we have, the better result we'll get. So these people generally follow John Stuart Mill Mm -hmm. um, and just uh, with a a faith that the open conversation will bring deeper truths or deeper insights. Um, on the other hand, you have people saying that, like, look what that dredges up, you know, lots of talk that isn't particularly rational or uh, meaningful. And therefore, we have to um, constrain the kind of talk that we allow in some sense on the Internet, even um, or in any kind of official publications. So you have um, I'm familiar with arguments on this uh, from the left, from Brian Leiter, who's a University of Chicago law professor who's argued for an epistemic arbiter or someone to mm-hmm. um, say what should be allowed in public debates. Um, you can also get it from the right and someone like uh, Harvard law professor Adrian Vermeule mm-hmm. has made the similar argument. 
Um, so this isn't necessarily dividing on political lines. You get you get left, right people aligning on both of these sides. Um, and I think that, um, you know, both of those may have some merits, but they're also fundamentally flawed in a certain way, which is that they're talking about speech you might they're – t- they're, they're talking about talk that you might call politically inflected. What they're not talking about is political speech. Political speech is a certain kind of thing, and it's not just any kind of comment on something that might have political relevance. Um, we draw on Aristotle first and foremost to say that he identified and described what political speech is in a, in a particularly compelling manner, particularly accurate manner. And um, he said that political speech is fundamentally a proposal for common action, right? So it's a suggestion about what we might do together. That thing has to be plausible. It has to be something that you could potentially persuade other people to join forces with you and do. Yeah. So to fund or to devote their energies to or their lives to, if you're talking about going to war or something like this, or simply to, you know, support and acquiesce. Right. So but it's a it's a proposal for common action. Again, that means it's not a a grievance. It's not just an expression of what someone wishes something more like. Um, But it is something that outlines something that one must do together. So I think if you had the function of political speech in mind as your, you know, trying to engage in it, um, that it would it would almost set its own boundaries. Right. So the, mm. the more the, the key thing to do is to get people to be aware of what political speech is, what its requirements are. And then from there, we can kind of cultivate people to um, to engage in it. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, just underline a, a part of what my wife was saying. If you think about the dominant images or metaphors evoked by the two sides of this debate, on the one hand, the marketplace of ideas, and on the other hand, the epistemic arbiter, one is an image of a marketplace. The other is an image of a, of a kind of scientific authority. Somebody would have the last word in a scientific debate. The point that we're trying to make, which we, uh, which we draw from Aristotle and, and some other thinkers, is that political speech is neither of these things. Political speech is not a marketplace. Political speech is not science. Mm. Political speech is specifically a proposal for common action, which one proposes to undertake with one's fellow citizens. It's a different kind of speech. And it's that uh, kind of speech that we think we suffer from a particular dearth of in our time. Yeah. So concerning these two kind of opposite camps of marketplace and epistemic arbitration, you kind of charge them with an attempt to evade making political decisions about speech, uh, are are the words you use, whereas in reality, political decisions cannot be avoided. So why do you think it is that we try so hard to avoid making political decisions and engaging in political speech? Like, What's so scary about this? Let me take the focus off of politics for one second and refer to something Aristotle says that is a sort of closer to home model of politics, which is marriage. Right. So mm-hmm. the relationship between husband and wife is for, polit- for Aristotle, the model of the political relationship mm-hmm. as opposed to like a master slave relationship or a king subject relationship. And if you think about this just even closer to home in a marriage or any kind of like commitment you make to another person, maybe a particularly strong friendship. Um, This is kind of scary. It's a risk, right? You bind yourself to someone else through thick and thin, richer and poorer and so forth. And you don't know what's going to come up in in the course of your life. 
And yet you decide that you are going to live and change together and you're going to make these decisions together. And you know that will take you places that you have not foreseen. You know, mm-hmm. Politics is similar in a sense. Hmm. It's scary because when you engage in debate, conversation, and common action with people, people, um, other people, you're going to end up doing things that you probably have never imagined before. Um, and maybe things you thought you didn't want to do, and maybe things you persist in thinking you really would rather not do um, in the worst case. But um, it necessarily kind of takes you outside of yourself or causes you to stretch in ways that are intrinsically not uh, comfortable. I think another way to, uh, to think about the, um, the same point is that liberal democratic societies like ours like to leave as much room for freedom as possible. And there is some, uh, there's something uh, uh, admirable and, um, and right about that sentiment. Sure. However, our political order is not simply a liberal order. It's not simply a democratic order. It's also a Republican order. Mm-hmm. A Republican order is an order of self-governing citizens. That is citizens who make decisions together. And we can try as our colleague Will Hahn has pointed out, sometimes the Supreme Court has tried to take arguments about speech in particular out of the realm of politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The problem is that you can expel politics by the door, but it comes back through the window. In other words, <laughs> uh, the, so the, you know, the, what Will argues is the r- result of this is that the Supreme Court makes more and more politicized decisions about the boundaries of acceptable speech. They have, so sometimes Americans are have a sufficient dislike of politics that is of the fact of ruling and being ruled in part or in turn, which is the Aristotelian definition of what it is to live a political life. We have a sufficient dislike of this that we want to try to avoid it altogether. Part of the point that we're making here is that it's not avoidable. The, um, that insofar as we're going to have any kind of a community, we're going to have to make certain decisions together. And we need to recover the kind of speech that is aimed to lead us toward those kinds of decisions and those courses of common action. Yeah, that's a great kind of lean into our next question about sort of that unavoidability of politics and making decisions together. You mentioned that Aristotle quote about rule and being ruled in turn. We just had the midterm elections um, where we sort of try to do this process of either the party you vote for wins and then um, you're sort of ruling in a sense indirectly or your party loses and you're being ruled. But People, especially today, seem to have an aversion to this, as you suggest. I want to read a quote from your piece uh, that I thought was really good. Um, you allude to a disposition of the citizen who is able to lead and to follow, who is able to speak and to listen, who understands that political speech is designed to propose a common course of action, people who are not disposed to agree. So I wanted to ask you more about this disposition of the citizen that you're talking about, and why does it seem like maybe perhaps we've lost that today? How, and how, how might we recover that, mm-hmm. if, if you think that's the case? You know, Dan... We're talking on um, the day after the November elections, as Dan just mentioned. And I, I think it actually summarized the election a little bit differently than you did. We actually, at this point, we don't have a clear winner. It's not as though one party, it's not as though we're in a parliamentary system where one party was ruling and is being kicked out right. and another party is coming in. In fact, in the American system, it's very uncommon for one party actually to have control like this. Sure, sure. And so we're spending a lot of time avoiding what it takes to actually rule, actually govern, actually take action in the American system, which is the building not of just a majority, but of consensus. Mm-hmm. Damn, this is a point that our colleague Yuval Levin has made. 
that uh, many American institutions, uh, so for example, the, the institutions of our legislative system that force us towards supermajorities, not just majorities, to get anything significant passed, what those things force you toward is, is not just majority, but consensus, right? You have to have a larger the um, group of people that are willing to take any kind of significant action. So a lot of what we see in our politics is not that we are one day ruling and another day being ruled, but that we have a, we have a pathology of passivity. Again, that's a phrase of Yuval's. That is, we're, we're just not ruling at all. We're actually not taking action on many yeah. of the most fundamental things before us. And that is in part driven by our incapacity for thinking in the way that we would need to think to actually rule. So, for example, in the case of Congress, mm -hmm. what you have is not what we normally think of as an excess of ambitious people who are too bullheaded to actually get together and work together. You actually have a defect of the desire to rule. You have a defect of the desire to actually do something because actually doing something, actually having an effect would require making proposals that you could get other people to sign on to. And very few people are willing to actually take that kind of risk. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they're too squishy. It's not that it, it, it's, it's that they are not serious enough about actually getting something done. That's good. I agree with that. I, I might add that the most fundamental thing that in fact drove us to write this piece was the fact that we were hearing, particularly among a lot of young people that we were teaching or just young people that we were encountering this very casual talk about, well, it used to be, I'll go to Canada, right? If my <laughs> yes. particular candidate doesn't win, right? That was at least yeah. the It never of, like, seemed to follow through. never seemed to happen. Yeah. And I noticed, yeah, I noticed that when I was really young, that people would say that and it never <laughs> happened. And that bothered right. me. But I think it's gotten a lot worse now. Mm. You know, young people will talk about, well, I guess it's just going to be a civil war. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, no, mm. I never heard anyone in my generation or my parents' generation shrug off something like civil war like mm. that. So this is new, but it's a version of, well, I'll go to Canada, right? But worse, much worse version in a sense. Mm -hmm. But the sense that I am detachable from this country without actually taking that proposition seriously, mm. right? In other words, it's an expression of people's unwillingness to see that they have to live together and therefore they have to work together. And it may not be like a marriage because most marriages today are chosen, right? Like you find someone you love and then you work through the hard times, right? <laughs> We're not born in a country with people that we've chosen to be mm -hmm. to be living am mm -hmm. amongst, right? So, in this sense, it's it's often different. You're just thrown into this situation, but the fact is, you are you are there. It's a kind of givenness, right? And you live well with that givenness. You live up to what it actually is, right? You face the fact if you acknowledge that you have to continue living together, and therefore you have to work it out. And therefore, you have to make proposals for how you will engage in some kind of common activity. And you have to be willing to, to listen and, 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 and negotiate, right? Um, but I think the, very, the most fundamental thing is a facing of the facts, right? So I think something like politics, something like negotiation, something like committee work even, learning from someone else who's really different can be thrilling sometimes. But it really begins a lot of the time with the sense that I have to do this. I don't want to do this. Mm. Um, Interesting. And we were very concerned about the, the casual way that young people talk about, well, maybe it'll be civil war. Not, I mean, sometimes there, is, there are civil wars, right? Sure. Sometimes it is unavoidable. Maybe even sometimes it's the best course. But the way that people are talking about this is not as a practical proposal, right? It's not as a plan for action, like in the way that 
you know, Lincoln made decisions that, well, now we need to go to war. Now I need to do this thing that I wouldn't have chosen to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an abdication of any kind of political responsibility, but even recognition of reality. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So you discuss this, um, you, you know, you call this uh, process of collective decision for the common good, the balancing of, of interests and, and views. Um, following political philosopher Pierre Menon, you, you call it uh, the production of the common. And, you know, intuitively, I think to a lot of people, it might seem that disagreement hinders this production of the common um, and kind of preclude and destabilize unity. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have the kind of uh, John Stuart Mill stance that, that you mentioned, uh, that disagreement creates a sort of competitive marketplace um, and uh, that kind of spontaneously produces truth. And you've indicated uh, that you would take exception to that view. So if not that, in what sense and how does uh, dissent and disagreement further the common good and kind of aid the production of the common? Um, yeah. I think the the crucial point that Pierre Manon, this uh, this great French political philosopher, draws our attention to, is that the common is not a given. The common is something that we produce, and the example that he gives of this is the beginnings of Athenian political life back in ancient Greece. What he points out is that. At a moment when Athens was not yet a city, but just a great village, it was composed of two contending parties, nobles and serfs, who detested each other, who were literally at one another's throats. And this tension between them, this bloody conflict between them, became sufficient that they entered into a negotiation by means of which they formed a city and transformed themselves. And so the serfs rose up and asserted their claim to be citizens, to have a share in the cities. The patricians responded by no longer thinking of themselves as masters, but by making a claim to lead, to offer something particular and distinctive and and something that had a leading place in this particular political community. They come to think of themselves differently, right? A serf comes to think of himself as a citizen. A master comes to think of himself as a patrician. Those are different fundamental self-conceptions. They, all of them, come to think of themselves as having a share with one another in Athens. Mm -hmm. These are not people who begin from a sentiment of common love. That's not why they do this. They do this because they realize the only way for them to go forward is to hammer out some kind of agreement. Political speech is the kind of speech that seeks to do that, that seeks to unify a people in a course of common action. That is, they're also not just working out some kind of static modus vivendi. Mm-hmm. They're doing things mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm. The, uh, such as executing the wars that Athens was constantly involved in the, uh, in the, um, in the ancient world. The, um, so that's what political speech is. It doesn't assume a common ground of shared loves or affections. Mm-hmm. They, uh, it, it, it creates that kind of common ground. 
Yeah, I think that example is really important, which is why Manon makes something of it in his book, Metamorphoses of the City, and why we put it in this essay, because a lot of times today you hear people saying, you know, Americans are so far apart, they can't possibly understand each other. But if you look at the situations in which some kind of commonality was forged through necessitated common action, like this one, where you have one people literally enslaving another, maybe not seeing them as even members of the same species, Mm -hmm. and you see that they actually formed a city, it opens up your mind to possibilities, right? <laughs> and if I might just mention one other example, which is a little closer to home, like the American example, right? So a lot of the times we think of the founding era, at least of the people that were engaged in, I'm not talking about the enslaved people, but the people engaged in articulating um, what, what they were, you know, the, the government and so forth, as a homogenous sort of group of mm-hmm. people. But if you look at that time, that's not so at all. There's great divisions between the North and the South. It's not clear even which language will prevail, what kind of customs will be the, the, the customs of our country. There's far more diversity at that time than we sometimes imagine today. So we sometimes have this narrative of like, well, we once were this kind of homogenous nation where we had say, affections and sentiments in common and culture. That's not true. Mm. Um, a lot of this was forged through... Um, through well, through necessity, through the decision to go to war, um, and then the need to prosecute it, and then to defend the country against other enemies, um, but also by the sense that we're going to war because we want to live. We have enough, and we see enough in common that we want to live this particular way of life together, and we don't want to be subject to to England, right? So there's a spark of something you want to do in common that enables you to bridge many other kinds of differences and actually create. Um, a much deeper kind of common life. Sure. I also want to just reemphasize a, a point that uh, my wife was making about the fact that what Manon is describing is exactly not an abstract way of thinking about political life that could issue in a universal set of rules like a universal declaration of human rights or something like this. Because I think what Manon is most interested in uh, about political life is its unprecedented character. In other words, once upon a time, there was no politics. Cities emerged into existence at a particular point in time and embarked on an adventure that led them into places which had no precedent and which have no, uh, which, which, which can't be thought about properly, abstractions like mathematical propositions. And so, for example, Manon describes France as a nation of a Christian mark with a strong and enduring Jewish presence. That's what that's uh, that's the the characterization that he gives of France at the kind of at the at the at the, at the moment in which he's writing this book. And if you consider that, um, that is a proposition about what France has become historically. And even as he's making it. Uh, Manon is suggesting a fundamental alteration of this understanding of France. That is, it's not just going to be a nation of Christian mark with a strong and enduring Jewish presence. It's going to be a nation of a Christian mark with a strong and enduring Jewish and Muslim <laughs> mm-hmm. presence, mm-hmm. which will fundamentally alter what France is. For Manon, that is politics. That is the world in which human beings are constantly inventing their own communities and transforming them in profound ways. That's what citizenship does. That's why. What Menon is, is describing as political speech can't be understood as a set of abstract propositions about rights or anything else and can't be mapped simply onto one society or another. There's, um, in other words, 
if there's a very contentious issue in your particular political community or your or or your other uh, you know kinds of communities, these are things that have to be worked out by people who are engaged in in practical negotiations about what they're going to do together. The results of those negations are uh, negotiations are always going to look particular, and that's the kind of element of political life that uh, that Manon thinks, for lots of reasons. Uh, we have just lost sight of. Mm-hmm. And we keep trying to solve our problems by having uh, recourse to theoretical abstractions. The theoretical abstractions are not going to do it. We have to have a practical negotiation about how to live together. So you've addressed this in some ways, um, I think particularly talking about the uh, diversity of that prevailed at the time of the American founding. But I think, yeah, especially in light of the example of France as a nation of Christian Mark brings this to mind. At the heart of this essay seems to be an assertion that, you know, we create the common community, the larger whole, um, through this process of adjudicating rival political claims in this sort of diplomatic fashion you know, pra- or, or pragmatic or particular um, way that you describe. But do you think, is there a limit to the diplomatic ability of political speech to create the common are some stretches just too far i guess do, do, do there have to be certain underlying tenets or practices that command implicit or near universal adherence in other words to have a common does there have to be a baseline agreement about what the common good is the alternative to diplomacy is war <laughs> and so the common that you have to have some part of is we prefer not to live in a situation of war. So, for example, in our time right now, you know, lots of people talk about, as, 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 as my wife said, you know, moving to Canada, the, um, should they lose the, uh, lose the next election? They're not serious. They actually want to continue living together. That's the only common that one has to begin with. One has to work everything else out. The um, as a matter of um, of political negotiation, I think that's the thing that we I think we've lost sight of is that in other words we we talk about civil war but we <laughs> we don't mean it the uh, because and we don't actually imaginatively entertain what that would really be like and so yeah we don't have to have you know a shared background of metaphysical assumptions you know, mm. people do all kinds of practical things together the um you know you know, you know work out the metaphysics with your auto mechanic the um and you, you know you, you we ought to think about our fellow citizens in something more of that light yeah. of people with with whom we're trying to do something together mm. be it um uh, fix a car or run a school system the um, where we have to work out some kind of common ground but we're going to hammer those things out in particular without you know it it, it doesn't have to involve the um, settling the first principles of our thinking. Yeah, I think there's Dagan notion that politics is about seeking truth or even that political discussion is about seeking truth, mm. which could be implicit in the mill view of things or in many people's views of things. Politics isn't about seeking truth. It's about seeking a good, right? The good and the true are not unrelated, <laughs> but they're not the same thing, mm. right? Mm. So like my husband said, mm. you don't have to agree beforehand on metaphysical propositions to do something together, right? Life would not function at all if that were the case. (laughs) You do lots of things with lots of people without checking out your presuppositions. And the fact is, I mean, we've all experienced it. If you do something with someone and that is in any way successful, right, you discover things in common 
things you probably would have never thought to think of, <laughs> you know, before that. So I think if we, again, reorient our politics more toward common action, which is what it is, and see that politics is about seeking some kinds of goods together rather than truths, we will discover things in common. There wouldn't be, I think you're right, how that there wouldn't be a political order without something in common, but that common doesn't exist prior to the political order. It should be discovered through the political process. To give a, a humble example of this, once upon a time, I served on a faculty committee with some people that I had the deepest disagreements with <laughs> about metaphysical propositions mm -hmm. and, and many other things. However, our charge was to represent the common positions of the faculty before our university's administration. We could come together to do that work. We could see eye to eye on these things. We could write documents together. We could take common positions in meetings together. That was possible when it was a matter of of prosecuting a common course of action. The, um, that's the difference I think m my wife is describing between seeking a good together the, um, and seeking the truth together. Seeking the truth would require a simply different framework of discussion. You know, you would be trying to figure out whether this or that is internally contradictory. Mm. The, um, you know, that would, be a, the, that would be a bar to its being truth. That's not the way it works when it comes to questions of common action. You're thinking about, is this a way forward upon which we can agree? And there could be a lot of agreement among people who think of themselves in that practical way. And good, I mean, it's relative. Goods are relative, right? Is this mm. a more preferable way forward than the other way forward? Yeah. It's not going to be perfect. The Whereas yeah. truth, speculative reason, this is, this mm -hmm. is absolute, right? When you're seeking mm -hmm. a truth, it is not relative. And so these two are distinct. Uh, Dan, you asked before if there's some way you could teach political virtue, something like that, political speech. Sure. And I do think this is where the, the two kinds of qualities of the citizen that I think you alluded to there, mm -hmm. the citizen mm -hmm. can both speak and listen, does come to where, where the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of good comes together a little bit, right? Because you could teach more effectively in our schools and universities the habits of speaking and listening, mm. persuading and um, being persuaded, right? And this would prepare people to have those kind of political discussions about the good if they were having them in our school, their schools, yeah. you know, matters of, of, of truth. So yeah. I think they, they are, in, in a practical way, they're related that mm -hmm. way. Yeah, and so, yeah, just to kind of wrap up a final point that if we want to recover or restore this view of politics as a work of producing the common, maybe it starts with education and teaching citizens to be able to speak and listen. And then as they grow up, they become politicians. They learn how to actually propose a common course of action. They become voters and they learn how to view their fellow citizens as people engage in this negotiation. What is kind of the, the first step to recovering this better type of view of politics and political speech? I think this begins with, I certainly think it's true that my, what my wife said about um, the way in which schools could better prepare us for this. But I think most of us learn these matters through practical experience. Mm. And um, Alexis de Tocqueville once described the great virtues of the American township, not as the efficiency with which they were run, that they, real, that, you know, that they built really great roads <laughs> the, because they had just the right road building science. <laughs> the, um, what he described as great about the American township was that it was a primary school of liberty. In other words, you had lots of people with responsibilities who had to do things together. And they therefore learned to take those kinds of responsibilities on a larger scale as they advance through life. So I think the, the key to the recovery of political speech and political action and the common 
is uh, a more robust engagement in political life. I think it's useful for Americans to remember, although we've come to be uh, very fond of describing our political system as a democracy, the founders didn't describe it as a democracy, and they described it as a republic. Mm -hmm. That is, they emphasize the element of citizenship that comes with republicanism as opposed to some of the other connotations that come with an emphasis on, um, on democracy. And so that kind of engaged um, active, not passive, the disposition toward political life seems to us to be the fundamental thing. Yeah. Well, that was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much both for joining us and for writing the piece. It's a great essay as well. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Great questions. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for having us on. If you'd like to read the stories, essay, or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. Addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.